Hi, I'm Brett Johnson, former United States Most Wanted cyber criminal, now good guy, and host of The Brett Johnson Show. Now look, there's a whole spiel that I usually go through that talks about 39 felonies, United States Most Wanted list, blah, 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 blah. But I've said that bullshit for over 38 shows now. So I'm imagining that maybe, just maybe, some of my viewers could probably say it back better than me. Matter of fact, I did a short today that somebody said, hey, it was really refreshing with this short Zell warning that you didn't go into your whole spiel again. And I had to kind of agree. So we're going to try something new. We're going to cut that shit out. Go right into the episode. Today's episode of the Brett Johnson Show, college textbook fraud, the KGB, and the dead baby method when we come back. All right, so we are back to... The Brett Johnson Show, and we cut out a lot of the opening sequence that I that I got to be honest with you. What I try to do for the past 38 episodes, I had tried to put some spin on it every single time. Try to do different inflections, try to come up with different ways to say the same thing over and over again. I have fun with it. I do. But at the same time, I understand that maybe some people get tired of hearing that shit sometimes. So we're going to Maybe we'll come back with it some. Maybe we won't. We'll see how it goes at the end of the day. Today's episode, of course, is college textbook fraud, the KGB, and the dead baby method. So we're going to talk about this, this story that came out talking about how a guy was doing college textbook fraud. He was ordering textbooks, rental textbooks from Amazon, and then committing fraud. So we'll talk about his story, how that's one of the ways that criminals find out how to commit crime and be successful at it. Then we're going to talk about this KGB story, these agents who used the identities of dead babies to infiltrate the United States and live very, very adult lives as agents. So we're going to talk about that. Before we get into that, of course, what do we do? We do viewer comments, comment on some other stuff, things like that. So Eastern Kentucky, Everyone knows by now that's where I'm from. Of course, they are still completely flooded out. Um, just some really nightmare stories. Truly is. Um, I don't know the, the the person it happened to, but there's a story that uh, a mother and father, they literally had their children, four kids. They were holding on to them, and the water was so rough that the water just washed the kids away. I read yesterday that they found all four children. Of course, all four children were dead. Uh, that's one of the things. One of the things that that, um, that I'm also seeing is that um, on Twitter, which let's be honest, Twitter is not the real world, and you've got a lot of assholes on Twitter. Twitter is basically that asshole format. You can be somewhat anonymous, say what you want to, and do it pretty much without consequence. But there's been some people that have been derogatory toward Eastern, toward Eastern Kentucky, and they basically said, "Well, you guys voted for Trump." So you get what you deserve. This is this is the flood of Trump. Well, you know what? You guys are assholes. You're morons. Um, anybody that thinks that it's it's. How about we live in a world where you're you treat people the way you want to be treated? Back in the day, there's actually a book written about this guy who kind of said that same thing. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Of course, he said that. And then they nailed him to a tree after that. So maybe, maybe he's not the best subject to look up to, but maybe he is. Maybe he is. You know, it's just, it, it, you don't have to be, you don't have to show hatred. 
you know, just because you've got some different political view than someone, just because you don't see eye to eye or just because you've never been in that area, you don't understand that lifestyle or anything else. You don't, that doesn't mean that you've got to look down on people. So I just wanted to say that, uh, um, get on my high horse for a second and say that, uh, you know, just bear in mind, I mean, we're seeing, we see disasters across the United States, across the planet. And um, a lot of the times it's hard to have empathy because we've not experienced that, but we can certainly show sympathy toward people. And we can, we cannot try to kick a dog when they're down. Just my thought on that. All right. So moving over into lighter fare. Viewer comments, Evan Dixon, I promised you all that I was supposed to talk about virtual cards on the last episode. As I mentioned, I had to record that episode twice. So this episode, top of the top of the show, like I said, we're going to talk about that. Evan says, hey, on, my last show was the Megan Kelly follow-up. And he said, hey, you're slaying some sacred cows today. First, hillbillies as a derogatory term, which it's not. And then crypto as currency, which it's not. So thank you, Evan, for the shout out. He says, Sorry for your house trouble and loss of family member. I was that was my cousin I was talking about. I was eager, eagerly listening for the virtual credit number topic, but didn't hear it. Nevertheless, great show. Thanks. So we'll, let's talk about virtual numbers. I've talked about how attackers, criminals, have a toolbox, and in that toolbox, they have a variety of tools with which to attack you. They have the low-level social engineering tools, spoof phone calls, text messages, what have you. They have the upper-tier tools, you know, side SQL server attacks, Mimikat, whatever that hell, hell that may be. As a defender, you, you need a set of tools as well. To me, as an individual, the top three tools that you need are freezing your credit, monitoring accounts and placing alerts, and then finally a password manager. But that's not the only tools you should have in your defense toolbox. You should have multi-factor authentication. That is a tool. It's not a cure-all. It's not a silver bullet, but it's a tool that's a very effective tool. Another very effective tool is a virtual credit card number if you're, or debit card number. If your bank offers these things, so what happens is, is you're looking to purchase something from an online merchant, Amazon, Apple, whatever. Instead of your, you using your actual debit or credit card number, your bank will generate a virtual number that you can use in its steed. That way, in case you've got a criminal that's doing a man-in-the-middle attack or a mage card attack or something like that and capturing the, the credit card numbers that are in that shopping cart or going, being transferred across the line, transmitted across the line, that virtual number is the only thing that they get. So it's very effective. It's a very effective tool. So I, that was my, and that's, hey, I'm all for them. I understand I'm all for them. But at the same time, I want you to understand that it's just a tool. It is not a silver bullet. And I started to think on the last episode, I kind of walked it through in real time. It was hitting me. What could a criminal do with a virtual card number? So what I, what I think could happen is that if I if I captured just the virtual card number, I could run that the bin the bank identification number. That's the first six digits of the card number. It tells the card type and the issuing bank. I would then realize that it, as from the criminal, I would realize that it was a virtual card number. I would have that virtual card number. I would have your name, your address, your pi, your address, your phone number, and your email address. All right. What I think I could do and probably be pretty effective with that is I could call the bank 
and I could I could try to take over your account like that. So I would call the bank and I would say, hey, my name is John Smith. Look, I, I lost my card. I need you to go ahead and send me another card out. I lost it. No, I don't remember the last card numbers, but look, I, I just I, I before I lost the card, I had this. You guys issued me a virtual card number. The last four digits of that virtual card number were blah, 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 blah. I think that if you were a good social engineer, spoofed your phone number, things like that, I, I'm confident. I'm very confident, as a matter of fact, that I could get a replacement card sent out and overnighted to your address, to your real address, not a drop address that I have. That's, but that would help me get the card in. Then if I know I could talk to, I could talk to customer service agent, Hey, can you overnight the card to me? That way I know what day specifically that card is going to arrive. And I know that UPS or FedEx is going to deliver that card. If I know the area, I'll know what time that delivery driver is coming through. They'll drop the card off on your front porch and I can just go over and do some porch piracy and have a credit card that I can then activate because I can go on, you know, Delve Point, TLO, or just uh, RoboCheck and get your social security number, whatever information I need to activate that credit card replacement that I've had sent in. Just, just on the fly kind of thinking out loud about virtual cards. Now, that does not mean... That does not mean not to use them. That's still much more effective and much more secure than your real debit or credit card online. Absolutely. But still, I think that information could potentially be used to help commit fraud. It wouldn't be as effective as me having your actual debit or credit card number. But if I get the right agent on the line, I could probably do something with that. All right. Moving right along. And this is a comment from my refunding fraud episode on the Brett Johnson show. Dennis Swag. He makes the comment, oh no, stealing money from Jeff Bezos and the Walton family. So evil. Look, I don't care who you're stealing money from. You're still stealing money. Trying to say that or imply that Jeff Bezos and the Walton family can't afford it is a thin justification to commit crime. If you are going to, if you're going to commit crime, cowboy the fuck up and admit that you're committing crime instead of trying to justify it by saying, oh, they, they can't afford it or, you know, the banks are the real criminals. No, you're a criminal too. Just because somebody else has got a lot of money or just because some bank is ripping somebody off or anything else like that does not entitle you to commit fraud. All right. So there, cowboy the fuck up. Admit you're a criminal. Be an adult for once. All right. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Next one. This is from Megan Shredder or Mega Shredder 101. Comment on the Megan Kelly follow up that I did just this Monday's episode. And uh, the comment is Doesn't the NSA know who Satoshi Nakamoto is? And I responded, I commented, I, my comment on that was, hey, I've, got, I've actually got an answer for that. And I do have an answer for that. So when I began, when I turned my life around and started speaking and consulting, I became friends with Nathaniel Popper. Popper, I think it's Popper or Bopper. Popper over at the New York Times. And he's the, I don't know where he is now. He may still be at the NYT. But back then, he was the cryptocurrency writer for the New York Times. And we got along fine. Well, I'm in San Francisco one night and he calls me up and he says, hey, Brett, Satoshi Nakamoto just got compromised. And I was like, bullshit. He's like, yeah, man, he just got hacked. So I was like, what happened? So 
Nathaniel sends me over all these emails and all the information that he's got. Well, the emails, what happened was, is an old email address that Nakamoto had used had expired. Well, some criminal, well, I won't say a criminal, somebody had went back into that email system that third-party provider and registered the exact same email address and come to find out they hadn't deleted any of the old emails that Satoshi Nakamoto had been writing and sending back and forth. And some of those were some orders that he had placed. So, I mean, his identity was certainly there. Now, the person who got access to that email was then blackmailing the real Satoshi Nakamoto saying, I need X number of Bitcoins in order to not expose who you are. I have no idea how that story ended up. You could probably chase down Nathaniel Popper, everything else, and ask. But Nathaniel gave me this information, and he gave me, in some of the emails and snapshots that he sent over to me, there was an email address. And the email address was ceramicstudios1 at Gmail. And within this, there were some snapshots of some emails of a CIA agent or CIA operative, because it had CIA.gov, was emailing Satoshi Nakamoto back and forth. And the email, the email exchange that, that I had access to, that I read, the agent was telling Nakamoto that Bitcoin fraud and crime had gotten past just those small-time cyber criminals that were on the dark web that they were seeing organized crime elements that were taking over power grids in order to mine Bitcoin. And Nakamoto's response, and it had his email, except for an EDU, it, has e it had his email blacked out, his email address. His response to, this, to the email, to the query, to the CIA query, was that the CIA was well aware that Bitcoin was not anonymous, that they could start, that they could track that. And that was the entire exchange. And then from there, I emailed that the email address. I did get a response, and there was a short exchange with me and the, the gentleman on the other end of the lines, presumably Nakamoto. So my answer, Mega Shredder 101, is I fully believe that there are people in government who know who Satoshi Nakamoto is. Now, that being said, because on the Megyn Kelly follow-up, I made the comment that Satoshi recognized that because of e-gold and those people being indicted for money laundering, I, re I, I said that Satoshi and Peter Thiel thinks the same thing, realized that Bitcoin needed to be anonymous. Now, of course, if you've got government, some government elements that knows he's not anonymous, that defeats that, right? Well, not necessarily, because... You need to understand that government agencies are horrible about being jealous of each other, about communicating with each other, about sharing information with each other. So while one, some element of some agency may know the identity to, they would, I would find it hard to believe that they would share that with any other agency regardless. That's my thought on that. Okay. So moving right along. T. Rabbis, T. Rabbis, I guess his name's Travis. He makes, he made a couple of comments. Um, I don't know which episode it was. I just kind of pulled it off. Uh, what he says is he, he makes a comment about me first. Oh, what a loser. And then later on, two comments down the line, he says, uh, you know, this guy's a bum. He had how many fel felonies? 39 felonies, blah, blah, blah. Look, 
T. Ravis, Travis, whatever your name is, um, you can say I'm a bum. You're not going to hurt my feelings by saying that. I would point out that I would even agree with you when I was a criminal. However, I don't think I would agree with you now because I don't think I don't, I'm not sure anyone could really call me a bum these days. I do a lot of hard work. I do a lot of work about protecting people. I don't really like to blow that horn a lot, but by God, I do. So if you want to refer to me as a bum, piece of scum, piece of shit, whatever, when I was a criminal, hey, I may even co-sign off to that. But these days, I'm afraid not. If you don't like the show, hey, man, you don't have to listen to it, okay? But I, I hope that you, at the end of the day, that you stay safe and secure and that everything's okay. If you need me, let me know. All right, even though you said it, I'll still help you and watch out for you because that's the kind of guy I am, you fuck. <laughs> All right, so from the refunding fraud episode, this uh, person's name is FC, and his first comment is, is he says, yo, fucking delete this video, man. And I, I gave it that little Hispanic thing because the next comment was in Spanish. I was about to say Mexican because I'm from Eastern Kentucky. No, it's in Spanish. <laughs> so the next comment's in Spanish. And he says, hey, you're teaching people how to commit fraud. Don't do that. These people, somebody's going to learn from you and go out and commit fraud. My response to that, because I have people sometimes that say this kind of stuff. My response to that is, hey, fraudsters already know how to commit these crimes. Make no mistake about that. Fraudsters already know. You know who doesn't know how these crimes are committed? The victims. So I'm a believer that, hey, in order for you to defend yourself from being victimized, from having a crime perpetrated upon you, you should probably understand how these crimes are committed and who the criminals are that are targeting you. So I won't be removing videos and I won't stop talking about how these crimes are being committed or anything else like that. I hope you understand that. I hope anybody else that has a problem with anything that I say understands that as well. Understand, hey, make no mistake. Everything that I talk about, criminal communities on the dark web, on Telegram, Discord, YouTube, Facebook, things like that, they already know this shit. They're already talking about this stuff. They know how it's done. Anybody that's having a problem with that, maybe you should learn how it's done too so that you're not victimized. All right, Christina, she is a former law, well, she's a current law enforcement officer. She was out in L.A. And now she's down in Florida. She makes she asked me a question. She says, hi, Brett, do you do in-person or Zoom training for law enforcement? And she talks about some of her history. The answer is, and I, I've already spoken to Christine on the phone. So anyone who's interested, I, uh, I do all services for law enforcement for free. I do all services for universities for free. So if a university class wants me to come in and talk to them, their students, anything else like that, teachers, what have you. I do that stuff for free. If law enforcement wants to come in, Q&A session, talk about criminal environments or some of the scams or anything else like that, more than happy to do that. Christine, I'll be traveling down as soon as they can figure out a date where I'm open, where they can have me in and everything. I'll be traveling down to South Florida to talk to that agency down there to try to uh, you know talk about how criminal environments work, try to educate people, get them up. And that goes back to that FC comment. Hey, I'm not teaching people how to commit crime. I'm teaching people how criminals operate and what they do so you can better protect yourself. So that's the Q&A for the day. So let's get right into today's episode. As I said, today's episode, episode number 39, College Textbook Fraud, KGB, 
and the dead baby method. So the first story out of the gate, and I will have links to these stories in the show notes as well, but I'm going to read some of it. At least on this one, I'll read the first first paragraph or two of the story. This is from uh, bookriot.com. Headline, man sentenced to 16 years for $3 million book scam. 37-year-old Jeffrey Mark Hayes Tosma of Portage, Michigan, was sentenced to 16 years imprisonment by Chief United States District Judge Hala Y. Jarbu yesterday. The charges are mail fraud and aggravated identity theft. Tausma has also been ordered to pay over $3 million in restitution to Amazon. The expensive judgment comes as a result of a book scam in which Tausma took advantage of an Amazon program that was meant to help college students save money on textbooks. So over the space of three years, what Tausma did, he would go on Amazon. Now, Amazon, you can buy college textbooks or you can rent college textbooks and save yourself a shitload of money. So Talzma would rent these college textbooks and then he would, instead of returning them to Amazon, he would then take them to a college bookstore or sell them on eBay or where have you to people who would give him a lot more money. And he was profiting by that. Now, that doesn't sound, because I, I actually looked that up. I was starting to, I was like, shit, that's not a bad gig. So I went and I looked that up, and I was I was comparing some of the prices. And, um, you know, some of the books you make, a de you could make a decent turnaround doing that. Some of the books you you would make maybe 40 or 50 bucks. So Tosma had to scale this up. So he got himself two accomplices. He taught the accomplices. So here's what happens. When you have an Amazon account, you can only rent 15 textbooks at a time. So he would rent 15 textbooks per account, get the books in, take them down to the college bookstore, advertise them on eBay, where have you, sell them to college students, sell them to the college bookstore, pocket the money, pocketed $3 million doing this shit. All right. Got himself two accomplices as well, cut them into the profits, taught them how to set up you know, fake Amazon accounts, how to run drop addresses, things like that. Got sentenced to, to uh, what, 16 years because the way feds work, feds go by the dollar amount plus the aggravated identity theft. So he was obviously stealing people's identities to set up Amazon accounts. The aggravated identity theft would have added another two years consecutive onto whatever sentence he was sentenced to. So 16 years total. Now, the reason I, I mentioned this story is this is really one of these stories that illustrates how cyber criminals get some of the information that they have on how to successfully commit online crime. So I was just going through, I, I do Flipboard and, you know, for my news feed. And I was going through Flipboard and the story pops up. This man sentenced to 16 years for $3 million in book fraud. The story pops up and I read the story. Now, the criminal mindset pops in and it's no different than any other experienced criminal that's out there. You read the story. This guy made $3 million in three years. Huh? Shit. That's a good pay. Just on college textbook. Rental? Let, let me read this story. So you read the story. You see immediately out of the gate. It's, possible and it's wildly successful if you can scale it so what does it take it takes multiple amazon accounts multiple drop addresses 
that's not hard to do. Any any second rate cyber criminal can do that shit. It's not difficult. You may need a new device every single time to set up a new Amazon account, order 15 books, sell them on eBay, Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, college textbook stores, where have you. So it's very, it, very easy to do. So from a criminal point, you know, you read the news story that plants that seed of, well, hell, this shit can be done. The next question is, well, how did this guy get caught? So what you do then is you go to the DOJ, you pull up the indictment, you read the indictment, and the indictment will, will oftentimes discuss how someone like Talzma got his ass arrested, which is not very difficult, seeing as how he more than likely had these books sent to himself in his real name to begin with, and then probably in the, in the same type of geographic area, Cops start chasing this shit down. Maybe he's using the same IP range, everything else. Cops start, start chasing this shit down. Backtrack it, end up with Tosma, arrest the guy. He tells on his accomplices or they arrest one of the accomplices. They tell on the other two, blah, 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 all the way down. So it's not rocket science to catch these people. But an experienced criminal reads how the crime's successful, reads the profit potential there, and then pulls the indictment finds out how this guy was caught and makes sure that, hey, I don't need to do that. So I need to make sure my operational security, my OPSEC is in place to succeed. So you fix what went wrong in these stories. And that's the way it worked back in the days with Shadow Crew when we were figuring out these scams and frauds and things like that. It works no different today. All right. So just wanted to share that. That is the college textbook scam. This is going to be a shorter episode than those two-hour things that I sometimes put out. <laughs> Moving right along. And here is the meat of today's episode. This is on sfgate.com. Headline, alleged Russian spies reportedly used dead doubles to live in Hawaii Four years. So I'm going to read most of this story. It's not a horribly long story. I'm going to read most of this because there's a lot of meat here. And then we're going to comment about this, how the method was done, how they got new identities, things like that. It's called the dead baby method. So the story starts in the SF gate. Four years, the unassuming couple had been living peacefully on the island of Oahu. Husband Walter Glenn Primrose held a steady government job while his wife, Gwen Darl Morrison stayed at home, and though they mostly kept to themselves, they always made sure to smile and wave to their neighbors. Hi. When Hawaii News Now reported that they were arrested in a raid on Friday, July 22nd, that's when the accusations about their true identities started pouring in. Recent criminal complaints allege that Walter Glenn Primrose, a.k.a. Bobby Edward Fort, and Gwen Darrell Morrison, a.k.a. Julie Lynn Montague, stole the identities of dead infants from Texas to obtain passports, social security cards, and driver's licenses. Though details are not yet fully clear, the legal document claims that they ultimately planned to, quote, commit an offense against the United States government, end quote. But before they were arrested and charged with aggrav aggravated identity theft, 
But before that, they were arrested and charged with aggravated identity theft, making false statements on passport applications, and conspiracy to commit crimes against the United States. It seemed that they led fairly normal lives. According to the complaint, records say that Primrose and Morrison both went to Calhoun High School in Port Lavaca, Texas, 1970-1973. They then attended Stephen F. Austin State University, 1976-1979. On August 19, 1980, they married in Nacogdoches, Texas. And hey, if you've not been to Nacogdoches, Texas, that's where Stephen F. Austin State University is. If you've not been there, it is an absolutely beautiful part of Texas. I, I've been there a few times speaking for uh, a friend of mine. Uh, he, he does some security for a bank. Been there for a couple of conferences. Uh, it is an absolutely amazing part of Texas. It's it's someplace I could easily call home. But evidently, they owned a home there. These two Russian spies owned a home there from 1981 to 1987. The year it foreclosed, they allegedly stole the identities of Bobby Edward Fort and Julie Lynn Montague, two deceased babies buried in Marble Falls and Burnett, Texas. It gets better. Subsequently, government records say that Primrose fraudulently enlisted in the Coast Guard as Bobby Fort from 1994 until 2016, when they then worked as a contractor for the U.S. Department of Defense until his arrest. Following the raid, there's been a flurry of news reports claiming that they might have also been Russian spies. Photos from the U.S. DOD show them in what appears to be KGB uniforms. And Hawaii News Now reported that investigators discovered, quote, coded messages and military maps, end quote, inside their home signaling espionage so let's i'm going to share the screen here so you can see and you can make your own judgment about whether these people were indeed kgb spies so here we go here's bobby edward fort and there is some russian in a kgb uniform and here is Gail Darrell Morrison, and there is some Russian in the KGB uniform. I can admit, I, I got to tell you, they look, they look very, very similar to me. I think that some sort of facial recognition software, like that little shitty company ID.me, I think that even that company would ping this person as this person, and this person, as this person. I'm just saying, I think it would happen. That's just my opinion. That's just my two cents. That's just what I think about it. Now, moving right along. I, I don't know if you guys think they're the same person, but by God, it looks like they're the same person to me. A U.S. State Department spokesperson says that they're American citizens and declined to comment further on the investigation. Now, they may be American citizens. I mean, their their identities are identities of American citizens. But I'm going to say, I'm going to say that these two individuals 
are Russian operatives. You know, at some point you got the guy, you got Bobby that's like, oh, yes, I am KGB guy. Yes, I, I love the fatherland. The, the Russian government, that is, oh, ha, I love Vladimir Putin. He's so great. And, of course, his wife, Daryl Morrison, she's like, oh, yes, I love the Russian government. The Russian government is fine. I love him so much. Ha, yes, Vlad Putin. Ha. Because, let's face it, I'm willing to bet that her voice is a little deep, too. Moving right along. While it seems outlandish, according to the FBI, this morbid tactic of using dead doubles was commonly used among Russian spies in past cases. From about 2000 to 2010, the FBI carried out the Operation Ghost Stories, a highly complex counterintelligence investigation into 10 illegal agents who posed as Americans but actually worked as unlawful agents for the Russian Federation. According to a sealed complaint filed in August 2010, this group of Russian secret agents assumed false identities and lived in the United States for years to carry out deep cover assignments. Documents claim that these agents typically receive specialized training before entering the United States, often communicating through invisible writing, Morse code, and ciphers. In the reports, they also used brush passes. So a brush pass is when you're, you're in a public place and you simply walk past someone, maybe bump into them accidentally, and during those brush passes, they would exchange information, currency, things like that. The complaint reports that this network of Russian spies sought to Americanize themselves as much as possible in order to infiltrate policy circles and harvest data for the Russian Federation, specifically communicating with a mysterious foreign entity called the Moscow Center. FBI agent Maria Ritchie says in the document that developing false identities or legends is the first step toward assimilation. The complaint says that typically they'll earn degrees, hold down jobs to build a convincing identity, often working in pairs under the guise of a married couple. Chillingly, the document also claims that those who do live together, these agents who do live together, will often have children to further deepen their legend. And it continues talking about that for a minute. So think about that. You got two Russian spies. They're, they're very big friends of Vladimir Putin. And one of them, they're like, well, we have, you know, hey, it's, it's, for, it's for the country. Yes, I think you're ugly as sin. That's the woman talking. I think you're ugly as sin. But it is for Vlad Putin. Here, put this bag over the top of your head. Come over here and inseminate me. So, yes, they would have kids in order to... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just sitting here wondering. I mean, hey, what about if you know one of them's ugly and another one's not? Because I got to be honest with you, sometimes things don't work if you're not sexually attracted to the other one. Just saying, the things you do for country. Anyway, Operation Ghost Stories was one of the largest, most successful. FBI investigations ever. They ended up, um, of course, they caught these people. They planted cameras. They planted mics. They planted everything else and monitored these people for years until finally they ended up expelling them out of country. These two individuals obviously are Russian plants. 
obviously. There's pictures of them in KGB outfits, and no, it's not part of a Halloween costume party or anything else like that. The 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 th- the one thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, I talk about from just my cybercrime history how a lot of identity theft is done. And I've done shows on synthetic fraud. I've talked about the dead baby method before, and I'm going to do it again today because it's it's a very effective method as to how to create an identity that you can live under. Now, in the United States, it's more complicated these days after 9-11, but it's still possible to an extent to, to do the dead baby method. So for those who don't know, the dead baby method was created by this novelist. His name is Frederick Forsyth. And if you've not read any of his books, his books are absolutely incredible. If you like spy books and espionage, those types of stories, he's a magnificent writer. The, the one book that this pertains to is called Day of the Jackal. And it's about this assassin who tries to assassinate Charles de Gaulle. A point in the book, he goes to a graveyard, finds the grave of a child who has died long ago, who would, if the child had been alive, the child would still be the approximate age of the assassin. From there, the assassin goes, gets the child's death certificate, then gets the birth certificate, and then assumes the identity of that dead child in order to go out and try to assassinate Charles de Gaulle. That way, he's covering his tracks all the way. Now, Frederick Forsyth, he actually invented this method. Frederick Forsyth, he, he talks about it later on after the book is published and everything else. And the book is wildly successful. There's been at least two movies that, that, uh, that, that you know, uh, do film versions of, of the novel and everything else. The book's outstanding. Most of Frederick Forsyth's works are outstanding as well. Frederick Forsyth, he didn't know whether that shit was possible. So Frederick Forsyth, what does he do? He tests it. Before before he writes it down and has it published, he wants to know, hey, can you actually do this? So he goes to a graveyard. He finds the identity of a child. He assumes the identity. And that's how he knows it can, it can happen. Well, that method is extremely effective. And the way it works is when we were committing crime, we had the California State Death Index. So you could find, you could go, the California State Death Index, you could get, it shows the uh, the person's name, the mother's maiden, the social security number, the date of birth, the date of death. So you have to realize that the federal government doesn't know you're dead until you tell them you're dead. For individuals who have who who died before 1998, the only way the federal government knows you're dead is if the family filed for a social security death benefit. So the state may know you're dead, okay? But state databases don't cross-reference federal databases and vice versa. So the only way the federal government knew you were dead is if the family filed for a Social Security death benefit, which would pay the family about $200 to help with burial expenses. Typically, the family did not file those things because $200 is not a whole shitload of money when it comes to trying to bury someone. And the family was very distraught. And most of the time, the family didn't even know about anything like that. After 1998, the law changed so that now the hospital or the funeral home could file for that benefit. And they knew about it. And hey, yeah, they were going to file for that shit. 
So you typically pick somebody that dies before 1998. You're looking for someone who has been born in one state and who dies in another state. And the reason for that is if you're born in the same state in which you die in, the chances of the birth certificate being stamped deceased, almost 100%. But if you're born in Kentucky and then die in California, the chances of that Kentucky birth certificate having deceased stamped on it, pretty low at that point. So you'd go to the California death index. I was born in 1970. I would start looking for someone who was born around 1968 to 1972, 1973, and who died at a very young age and who died, who was born in one state, died in another. So I would find my target. So one of my targets was this guy named Joshua Kaplan. True story. One of my targets was this guy named Joshua Kaplan. So I, I assumed I got that name. Then I ordered the death certificate. All right. Death certificate costs about $16. Get the death certificate in. That way I know exactly where to order the birth certificate in. Then you order the birth certificate. You order the birth certificate to make sure that it's not stamped deceased on it. If it's not stamped deceased, good job, Brett. So you've already got the social security number from there. What do I need to do? I need to get the social security card, which depending on when I was doing this crime, if it's before 2000, you know, 9-11, not very difficult to do. I would then file for a replacement social security card, social security card sent to me. The idea now is to try to build up enough corresponding identity data or, or, or uh, items that I could then walk into the DMV and get not a driver's license, but a state-issued ID card. So what I would do is, and I've talked about this on the Megyn Kelly show last time, one of the first steps you do is you register to vote. You can do that online and through the mail. So you get that voter registration card. You can use that as an item of identity. So I use the get the voter registration card on this dead baby. I've got the social security card on this dead baby. Then I go over, I may want to create a fake driver's license so I, I can go into places like Sam's, someplace like that, get all these little documents, these little articles of identity. Um, maybe get an unemployment. Uh, maybe get an employer identification card as well. You know, I work at, I used to print out uh, uh, employer identification cards from Microsoft. You know, it was very easy to do a, a, tab, a card that said you worked at Microsoft. So you print that stuff out. You get all these documents up, maybe sign on for some utilities under that dead baby's name, everything else. That way you've got a piece of mail that ties you to the address because they ask for that when you go in the DMV. So you get all this stuff up, all right? Then you walk into the DMV. No, you don't try to get a driver's license. No, you don't. Because a driver's license is a little bit more difficult to get. Instead, you walk into the DMV and you just get a state-issued ID. That's the only thing you're going to get. Maybe you'll fabricate some, you know, some school records, things like that. And then you get the state ID. Keep that for around six months. Walk back in with the state ID. Pick up the driver's license keep the driver's license for a year or so, and then file for the passport. The passport is the holy grail of identity. If you've got that passport, you've done everything fine. You're great. You're good to go. You can travel everything else. You are that person from that point on. These Russian operatives, they were committing dead baby fraud, the dead baby method. They were doing that in the 1970s and in through the early 80s, back when security was non-existent, back when the dead baby method was outstanding. You could get by with that. 
because of 9-11, because of cybersecurity and all these other things, everything going online, it's much more difficult in the United States to do that dead baby method. You can take it so far. You can actually take it to the point where you get a state driver's license, but taking it to the point where you get the passport is far more complicated and usually fails in the United States. Notice I keep saying the United States. In other countries, the dead baby method still works like a charm. In Italy, in Mexico, in South American countries, things like that, the dead baby method still works fantastic. Fantastic. Um, so that is the dead baby method. And there are different types of techniques that you can use to do that, depending on the state. Back in the United States again, depending on the state, if I'm looking to get a, uh, and this was prior to 2000, prior to 9-11, I'm not sure if it still works or not, may, I wouldn't be surprised if it did. What I could do is, is I could fabricate a fake ID, say I was, I could come up with a fake Kentucky driver's license, and then walk into a state that doesn't have reciprocity with Kentucky. That means that the two databases aren't connected. And I could walk into that state and pick up a real driver's license, just exchange the two out or pick up a real state ID in place of the fake Kentucky driver's license, because I've got all the other corresponding identity documents that I need. Typically, you go into a state DMV that is a little backward, which there are plenty of those, and you try to find that new person that's behind there, that person that's busy and swamped and everything else, and you walk out and you're okay at that point. That's the dead baby method. Not rocket science at all, but very effective. And, and here's the interesting thing, what I thought was very interesting about this story. Cyber criminals, the type of criminal that I used to be, we did this all the time, all the time. Just because you see cyber criminals doing this does not mean that nation states don't do the exact same thing. You know, just because it, it doesn't have to be really sophisticated for it to work. These are KGB operatives that embedded themselves in the United States doing the exact same types of techniques that cyber criminals do. Understand that. All right. Cybercrime regardless of who you are. And I've said this before, cybercrime is not, typically it's not sophisticated. It does not take a lot of sophisticated uh, uh, techniques or tools or anything to commit these types of crimes. All right. The dead baby method is a prime example of that. You've got cyber criminals that are committing these crimes. Then you've got nation states that use the exact same techniques that the normal street cyber criminal does in order to commit espionage against the United States government. And where does it come from? comes from a guy who just made it up in a book. So yeah, that kind of shit works. It's that brainstorming. Sometimes that shit works. It's, it boils down, boils down to what is a criminal willing to do? What are you willing to try? A lot of the time, if you're willing to try it, a lot of the time you'll see it, it absolutely succeeds. I'm Brett Johnson. This is the Brett Johnson Show. What do we say? Stay safe. Stay secure. Stay vigilant. At the end of the day, this is the Brett Johnson Show. Just do the right damn thing. I'm Brett Johnson. Thank you for watching. Until next time.